Welcome to another Sustainable Wine Blog podcast with me, Toby Webb, and joining me in today's podcast is Clay and Frederica, uh, who are the owners of Claiborne and Churchill, and uh, that's a winery um, here in the central coast of California. Um, I'm going to introduce them and let them tell you listeners a bit more about the wines they make, um, and uh, then we'll talk a bit about sustainability. So, Clay, Federica, welcome to the podcast. Thank, Thank you. you. Happy to be here. Why don't you start off by telling us um, how we came to be here today? How did you come to start this venture? Because I understand you guys were academics, is that right? Originally? This that is, is correct, true. yeah. Like a lot of people in the wine business, we, we came from outside. Um, I was a professor of Old Norse language and literature in Michigan. Frederica taught German at the University of Michigan. It's kind of hard to give a nutshell explanation of what happened. The easiest thing is to say that uh, I went through midlife crisis, and the solution to my midlife crisis was to get married, uh, move to California, and start a new job in in the same week. And that industry I picked was wine. I, I got a job working in a winery in a wine cellar in the uh, in the Edna Valley. In fact, I was the third employee at this new winery in the Edna Valley and uh, worked there five years, and that's how we got started. And when was that? That was 1981. 1981. Mm-hmm. It's pretty early, really. I mean, I know... I know Grapes have been grown around here, and good wine has been made for 50, 60 years, perhaps longer. But 81, there can't have been that many other vineyards Well, around. no, the first, the first vineyards uh, after, after the Mission Fathers were, were planted in the early 70s, 72. So, so they would have just started producing grapes in 75, 76. And then a couple of wineries were founded in 1980, uh, the winery I worked for, Edna Valley Vineyard, was not even finished in 81 when I came. I, would, I was their first cellar worker. There was a 26-year-old winemaker and a 24-year-old assistant winemaker, and, and there was me. <laughs> uh, there was another winery called Chamisol that started about the same time. Uh, planted grapes in 72, started making wine in 1980. So, you know, we were newcomers, and... Now look at the place. I mean, it's filled with wineries, oh, 300 in San Luis County alone. And yeah, I, there really weren't very many when we moved here, and that was it, it was kind of a quieter, you know, wine industry in the sense that there were people living in the Edna Valley who were not aware that wine was being made across the road from them even. Um, so, yeah, it's certainly developed since then and well let's talk a bit about the the wines you make today um, we're sitting here in your office you've got a couple of acres of riesling which i've just uh, had a look at and the berries seem to be coming along very nicely uh-huh. yeah um and i've had a, a tasting of your mainly whites and your your peanuts but why don't you tell our listeners um how you make wine here because you've, you've got two acres of is it just riesling here and then you're buying in grapes from other growers right. right well we've we've always been dependent on having good relationships with grape growers and there are of course thousands of grape growers in california who have no winery attached they simply grow grapes and sell them and so since we started our business with uh, almost no money and didn't win the lottery and uh, it, it was impossible to you know, buy 50 acres and plant grapes and wait three years for them to get ripe and so on. So we've always purchased grapes. And um, as far as the wines we make, 
we decided at the very beginning to specialize in wines that are sort of niche wines. We didn't want to make exactly the same kind of wines that my host winery, the where I was working, made. We happen to be very fond of certain wine regions in Europe, particularly that wonderful hybrid culture of German and French, which is known as Alsace. And we both spent time there. Um, both of us speak German, I speak French. We decided that we would specialize in Riesling and Gewürztraminer, and eventually other Alsatian wines. And um, while we knew that Riesling was not a prestigious wine in California, in fact, there were a lot of really mediocre Rieslings, we reckoned that if we made Riesling dry instead of sugary bubblegum sweet, that the world would just beat a path to our doorstep and we would just be wealthy overnight. How's that going? We, we, we sort of misjudged the, the market. Maybe you were a bit too early. because I've just tasted your reasoning. I think yeah, it's super we were about 30 years too early. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah, the world is catching up to us now and, and the American market is discovering uh, alternative white wines and also particularly Riesling. So It's an exciting time, I think, for yeah. the American... Yeah. Wine market. I mean, I absolutely. I just I'm in the middle of reading John Bonnet's book about the new California winemakers from a, a few years ago. Mm -hmm. I completely agreed with everything he said in the first two pages of the book about you know sort of parkerized fruit forward, mm. fruit bombs with high alcohol, and yeah. you know his his mission to go and seek out. I think probably operations like yours who are making much more authentic wines and. The philosophy that comes across in the book, and I wondered if you agree with this, is not trying to emulate the old world, but, but trying to get these new world wines to express the land in, from which they come. Is Absolutely, that? yeah. Right, yeah. you have to yeah. do that. We, we have never claimed to make carbon copies of Alsace wines. I mean, you can't, you can't reproduce another region's wines, but you can be inspired by them to create something that is enjoyable in the same way, fills that same niche, and so on. And, and that's what we've done. So we've, I mean, we've, we started out with dry Gewürztraminer and dry Riesling. We made 560 cases of those the, the first year, and uh, and we blended two, the two together and called it Edelswicker, which is an Alsatian blend. In 85, we started making dry Muscat. There was no Pinot Gris to be had. In fact, no one here knew what Pinot Gris was until probably the 90s, and then late 90s we started making Pinot Gris and now we do Pinot Blanc also. So who was buying the wines then and, and who buys them now? Are you hmm. selling to just average Joe consumers like me? Are you selling to restaurants, well, distributors? Well, in the beginning it was it was really something we wanted to focus on restaurants and so we would, um, you know, look up some of the nicest restaurants in Los Angeles and San Francisco, and then, of course, local restaurants, although the restaurant scene here was not very developed at the time. <coughs> um, and the, it, it was interesting because we would pour the wines for the chefs sometimes and the owner together of a nice restaurant, and the chef would just go crazy. He would think that this is so wonderful to have something besides Chardonnay, <laughs> and oaky Chardonnay at that. Um, and that they would be excellent food wines. You know, they would show off the food really well. But unfortunately, at that point, I think the chefs were also ahead of the curve. <laughs> and uh, the, the general public was still ordering a knee-jerk Chardonnay, you know, as the only white with dinner. So it took a while. It took a lot of educating 
Um, we still sell to to a lot of restaurants, and our distributor does also because they are obviously good food wines. But um, we also sell to good wine shops. We sell. We have a very active seller club membership at our winery, and our tasting room has a lot of visitors, and so. Uh, a number of the wines, which we make, you know, in smaller quantities, which wouldn't ever really make it to the market, are available in the winery and and in the cellar club. So, and your, your average number of bottles per per year, in let's say in, in total, what, we give the listeners a sense of what your output is: seven to eight thousand cases and of twelve bottles each. Multiply that times okay, 12. Okay, that's everything you do. That's, that would be that's everything. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. we do it all there. <laughs> so. So why don't we talk a bit about your views on sustainability? It's um, a much misunderstood and a much used term. I've seen some quite hilarious bottles of wine here in California where there's, they're not disclosing anything about the wine at all, but it says sustainably made on the back. And I'm thinking, hang on a minute, what about a bit of transparency? Why don't you tell me what I'm drinking before you tell me it's sustainable? Yeah, that's like all natural, right? The all natural label on all kinds of foods. Exactly, yeah. So what are, you, what are your views on as, all of this? Because you're part of the SIP certified program. Yeah, yeah. As, as I understand it, um, sustainable is a better term for what wineries do than organic, because organic has some fairly arbitrary, somewhat strict rules that we don't care about. I mean, no SO2, you know, that, that's, that's an absurd thing. It's a totally natural thing. Uh, the wines are going to be miserable, lousy in a few years if you don't add a little SO2. And there are other things that you do maybe in the vineyard. Uh, sustainable means um, having respect for for the land, the resources, the people, the people, the business practices, the customers, and everything, so that um, nothing is abused and well, or exploited, or, yeah, or exploited. And, it just... and, and it happens that there is this organization, um, the Vineyard Team, which has a program of certification called SIP, SIP Certified Sustainability and Practice. And so we latched onto that, and our vineyard is uh, SIP certified. They also looked into our business practices, how we treat our employees, our winemaking, and, and how we make the wine, and so forth. And and that's therefore many of the wines we make uh, are adorned with a seal of SIP certification. And the and the vineyards, you know, that they that where the grapes are grown, also right. Yeah. And uh, how do you feel about someone else certifying your practices? I mean, one of the producers I met recently in, in Bandol said to me, you know, I'm biodynamic in my farming, but I'm not going to pay some bunch of bureaucrats <laughs> to come and give me a certificate to tell me what I'm already doing. And another winemaker in Italy said to me, why do I have to pay for a label to tell my customers I'm not poisoning them? Well, Surely everybody else <laughs> would have to pay for a label saying that they are. And, and those are extreme objections, obviously. Well, but, but I wondered, you know, how does it sit with you? To, well, I would say to this to start off with is it's not the government telling us how to make wine. And I know that France, they do that, in fact. If you want to have a certain kind of wine, you have to follow the government regulations. This is a... Uh, for the AOC, yeah. This is a private company of people who are looking to improve the quality and for, for a minimal fee I mean it hardly anything we we get to put the 
seal on the label. After they, the, yeah. The, the hard work is jumping through all the hoops that they have, uh, supplying all the data, doing all the quality control, and the record keeping and so forth, so that they can take a look at it and see that, yes, this is something we can approve of. And it's not an expensive thing, and it's good, it's good for us to have to... I have to yeah, we found them. They were do those exercises helpful, and they you know explained everything that they were looking for, and so it really was not a big ordeal. You know, it, it is it does involve a lot of record keeping and so forth that maybe other people don't want to do, but it, yeah. it makes sense to us. And it's kind of a reflection of what we believe in. Even going back to the foundation of our winery, when we built our winery. We, we were the first commercial building in California made out of straw bales. And, uh, and that's sustainability in, 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 to the nth degree. I mean, this is made with recycled rice straw, rice yeah. straw uh, that the rice farmers can no longer burn in their fields the way they had been doing. It's uh, such great insulation value, something like R55 or something that we actually have no mechanical heating or cooling in the winery and it it remains a wine cellar um, without all the extra energy extended and uh, so hey we're saving the planet you know (laughs) certainly doing your bit (laughs) the the SIP program it sounds like it's it's uh it's pretty credible and pretty comprehensive do you ever think about going further I mean there's a lot of conversations about biodynamic winemaking and then within biodynamics there are kind of two schools of thought you've got the those who look at just the the practices and those who really buy into the mystical stuff mm-hmm. the and, and the, the, yeah and, and some of it um even for me as someone who's a really interesting wine some of the some of the fruit flower day stuff sounds a bit wacky to me <laughs> but i completely buy into the science mm-hmm. behind biodynamics i think it's mm-hmm. fascinating what sort of conversations have you guys been having about mm-hmm. that if ever. Actually, I don't think we really have. Uh, I, I I think I'm the wrong person to ask. I uh, I'm not a vineyard guy. I'm not a grape grower so much. Uh, obviously, uh, having been a, a a Nordic philologist in my education, I'm not exactly the expert on agriculture. And, well, I'm uh, sure Thor would have had a view. I've been uh, <laughs> yeah. I've been <clears throat> making the wine, and now. Uh, having passed that baton on to a younger man, uh, making the business work. And the last thing I have time to do is to learn what the parameters of biodynamic hocus-pocus wine growing is. <laughs> so well, well, fair so, enough. so I, I would not have time. Uh, <laughs> there are not enough hours in the day to try to learn all that. Fair enough. Well, one final question for, for both of you. Um, have you noticed changes in temperature since you've been making wine in the last 30 or 40 years around here? I'm talking about climate change. You know, we've seen you know, one degree more or less of, of global warming, which I know is a, a, a difficult term in the US in some circles to use. Um, and of course, that's had effects in different parts of the world, some drier, some wetter. Um, in France, we've seen harvests come forward up to two or three weeks in some cases, which is actually becoming a bit of a problem. 
um, because you know people are saying the grapes aren't ripe enough and there's too much sugar. Mm. What, what have you noticed in your long period here? Have you noticed anything? In, and if you haven't, fair enough. I'm just no, I, serious. I, I suppose that we do have earlier harvests on the whole. The, the, the thing I notice most of all is the haphazard and variable nature of the climate or the weather uh, where you have extremes of heat and cold, heat spikes, cold cold uh, temperatures and I, when you yeah. don't expect it, and um, just a very erratic kind of thing. Rain in excess and then droughts for five, six years. And so that that's climate change. It's not global warming per se, but it's, you know, it's noticeable and it presents its own challenges. Mm. Uh, I guess some of that might be to do with the El Nino cycle people have been talking about as well here, affecting California with the drought. So that, I guess it's hard to know. That's, yeah, that's the rain. It is, because we don't have why, the why kind of climate where you have some rain throughout the entire year. It pretty much stops, you know, at the end of May, and we don't have any rain until um, November. Wow. In California, you know, in California yeah. in general, especially you know, here and south, up hence, north. Hence the need for irrigation, I guess. Yes. Drip irrigation, right. yeah. Oh, right. Drip irrigation, mm -hmm. of course. Great. Well, um, thank you very much for your time. It's <laughs> nice talking Frederica. to you. Real pleasure to speak with you. Listeners, I commend to you the Claiborne and Churchill wines. Um, where can our listeners go if they want to buy your wine? Do they just Google your name and uh, try and buy it online? Well, the, that's the easiest thing is to simply go to our website or give us a call. Yeah. And you can ship overseas? ClaibornChurchill.com. Yeah. Um, we, I'm we afraid really it would be so complicated. That a bit difficult. Okay, yeah. listen, well, you'll have to come over here to the US and enjoy <laughs> the wines here with some lovely seafood. Clay and Frederica, thank you so much for thank your time. Thank you, Toby. <laughs> Bye -bye.